If you have a Bible, please turn to our Old Testament reading, Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to begin a series of sermons this morning focused on money. Um, The title for this series is Money and the Kingdom of God. Now, if you were with us back in the spring of 2019 and you attended a Sunday evening series of teachings that I did then, they were focused on Christian economics, then then a lot of what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, some of it's going to be familiar to you. But we're going to do this. We're going back um, to that subject for two reasons. First of all, um, I'm going to do a big teaching on sex in the fall, and evangelical churches tend to talk more about sex than money, and that's not fair because the Bible talks more about money than sex. And so if all the conservatives in the room are getting ready and excited about the fall, then um, you can suffer for the next few weeks as the liberals fear for the fall. No, that, that's actually, it, it's not quite like that. But, but here's the deal. Over and over, Scripture warns us that money is sneaky and that it, it can become a trap and that it is of all the forces in our world. When Jesus said, beware of trying to serve two masters, the second one he picked other than God was money, the sneakiest one. And so we need to return to money on a regular basis because if you read the scriptures regularly, they regularly call you to audit your life with regard to your relationship to money and how you're relating, not, not just what you do with your money, but how the community you live in um, structures money. And so it's really important that we regularly follow Scripture's emphasis, which regularly treats money. A second reason that we're going to um, come back and, and deal with this is that over the past three and a half years, we've sent out a significant percentage of our church to plant churches, to help other churches that, are, that have been along for a while. And we've had a lot of new people come into our church. And so we need to kind of go back to basics this fall. I'm, after the series on money, we're going to do a series on prayer and the Psalms, partly so that this new church, this church that's got people who've been in it a while, but also a lot of new people, so that we as a group can go back to some basic things together. All right. With that said, let's start this whole series on money in quite an odd place. Joshua chapter 2. This passage that Jane read to us. We meet Rahab, a prostitute, living in the city of Jericho. And Jericho is this powerful, wealthy, walled city. And one day... Rahab meets a couple of men who are spies. They're Israelite spies. Israel is the enemy of Jericho. And here are these spies that are the enemy of her people, and Rahab does a strange thing. She hides the spies from her fellow countrymen. And while she's hiding them, She tells the spies of Israel. This is right in the middle of the chapter. This is the center of the chapter. It starts in verse 9. She tells them this. I know that Yahweh, your God, 
has given you this land. Because we heard how he dried up the Red Sea before you, how he destroyed the kings who stood against you. And we're terrified because we know your God is God in heaven and on the earth. So please swear that you will spare my family and me when we conquer our country, when you conquer our country. This is a remarkable thing, right? Right, this is, this is a, a tremendous kind of movement that's taking place in the dark of night. This might seem like an odd place to start a series on money and the kingdom of God, but think about it this way. Rahab lived in a kingdom. She lived in the kingdom of Jericho. Jericho, like all kingdoms, had rules, and it had rulers, and it had economic policies and social arrangements, and of course, it had its own gods. Rahab's entire life had been shaped by that kingdom, and if her job as a prostitute is any indication, that kingdom had not been good for her. And so one day, Rahab looks out her window, and she sees another kingdom coming. A kingdom invading, a kingdom led by a different king that's got a different set of rules, a different ruler, a different economic approach, a different policy for social arrangements. And if she could believe the stories in this other kingdom, there was even a God strong enough to overcome the Egyptians, the most powerful kingdom on earth. Now, the God of Israel... This invading kingdom, he was known by a name, Yahweh. So Rahab finds herself in this situation where she sees mighty, powerful Yahweh on his way to her kingdom, to Jericho. And she realizes she's got a decision to make. Whose side will I be on? Will I keep my allegiance in this walled, wealthy, powerful kingdom? Or will I switch my allegiance to that kingdom that's coming toward us? Which king am I going to bend my knee to? In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab is caught between two kingdoms. The kingdom she had grown up in with its rules and way of life and economic system and way of handling money and stuff and resources and work and wealth and the kingdom of Yahweh that had a different set of rules, a different culture, a different economic system with different economic values and policies and habits and views on money. And Rahab chose which kingdom? In the story, she chooses Yahweh's kingdom. Why? Why did she switch her allegiance to Yahweh's kingdom? Well, it says in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, she had come to believe that at the end of the day, the kingdom that would be standing when the dust settled was not the one she grew up in. That's why she switched. She wanted to be on the winning side. She wanted to be in the kingdom that when all the dust cleared, she wanted to be in the one that was going to be standing. So she picked Yahweh's kingdom. And sure enough, if you've read the rest of the book of Joshua, 
When the dust settled, it was not the kingdom that she had grown up in that was still standing. It was Yahweh and his kingdom that stood. And Rahab and her family, because they picked allegiance to it, they lived and they flourished and they thrived. Now, as strange as it might seem, Rahab shows us the most important starting point for thinking about economics and money. It's to recognize that you're thinking about kingdoms. And which kingdom are you going to live in? Which kingdom are you going to take clues from for how to live your life? Are you going to recognize that in this world there are kingdoms? And those kingdoms have policies and attitudes and ways of doing things. Now, this is so important. For when it comes to looking out at our world and thinking about tough issues, that I want to come at it again from another angle. This time from the Gospels and Jesus himself. So turn to our Gospel reading, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. These are the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. What we're seeing here is that Jesus says to Israel, you're in the same place Rahab was in. You're in a kingdom. There is another kingdom at hand. Look out your window. There's a kingdom coming. Just like happened to Rahab 1,400 years prior to this. You are living in a kingdom. It's got a set of values. It's got a way of living its life. It's got economic policies. It's got sexual ethics. It has certain views on gender, on power, on all sorts of things. But there's this other kingdom that's coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus says, repent and believe that that's good news. Believe that it's good news that God's kingdom is invading. Believe that that's actually a good thing. That another kingdom run by a benevolent king who has wisdom for all of life and who's coming not to destroy but to restore and to heal and to bring flourishing. Look out your window and believe that's good news. Repent. And believe in the good news. Now, when Jesus said repent here, he meant three things. He meant stop sinning. Second, he meant change your allegiance. Turn your allegiance from loyalty to the kingdom you live in to loyalty to the kingdom of God. Turn your allegiance from your heroes and your leaders. Give your ultimate allegiance to Yahweh. Change your loyalty. And third, he meant, when he said, repent, turn from the ways of your birth kingdom. 
Learn to live by the values and practices of God's kingdom. Turn away from the social and political and economic agendas that are driving half the population of Israel at the time into violent behavior. And then Jesus said, believe. The people that Jesus said this to, they believed in all sorts of things. They trusted all sorts of things. They believed in their ancestors and their land and their temple and their laws. Even their God provided that he did what, he, what they wanted him to do. But Jesus was now saying to them, look at all the places in your life where you're putting trust in something. And take that trust that you give to stuff, that you give to things, that you give to politics, that you give to economic systems, that you give to certain ways of doing. I want you to take that thing in you called trust, and I want you to put it in me. Believe in me. Trust that this kingdom of mine is good for you, that that this is good news. Look out your window. Look at me. I'm here, and in me, God's kingdom is arriving. And you need to believe that that's good news, that my kingdom, the kingdom of Yahweh, is better than the best moment of the best kingdom of this world. And when the dust settles, the only kingdom that will be standing is not the strong, powerful Roman Empire with its dominating, seemingly irresistible economic program. The kingdom that will be standing when the dust settles is the kingdom of God. What's so important for us this morning as we turn this fall our attention to things like money and things like sex What's so important for us to see here in this passage is that the gospel is not about King Jesus rescuing us from the earth, from creation, from economic systems that we live in, from the society we live in. No, the gospel, the news that's good is Jesus is bringing his kingdom to this world to restore this world. To renew it. To find all the good in it and fan the good into flame. And to find all the brokenness in it and to erase that. King Jesus is launching a new world in which every person who is in Jesus will live and reign and work and worship in the resurrected earth and heavens with new bodies. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. Talking about Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Not in heaven. This is what God is doing with those who give their loyalty to King Jesus. He didn't snatch Rahab out of the Middle East. He didn't snatch her away. God is creating a people marked out by his kingdom values to live his kingdom values on this earth. Marked out by things like justice and righteousness and mercy 
and kindness and forgiveness and gentleness. That is the news that's good. That is the gospel of the kingdom. Today, right here in Harrisonburg, Virginia, July 31st, 2022, each one of us is a little bit like Rahab. We live in one kingdom, a kingdom of the world. And when we look out the window and we see King Jesus and his kingdom headed our way, we're confronted with the same question Rahab faced. Whose side am I on? Will I keep my allegiance in the wealthy, friendly city that I presently live in? Will it get my highest allegiance? Or will I bend my knee to the kingdom that is on the way? Our situation is like the situation in Colossae, this passage of our New Testament reading. Jesus has already invaded our city. It's a little different than Rahab. He's been here. (laughs) He was here long before any of us got here. And he didn't come to obliterate Harrisonburg. He didn't come to obliterate America. He didn't come to destroy the human kingdoms we've grown up in. He came to conquer them in love and to reclaim them in love and to open them up in love. This is what we're told in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What is Harrisonburg with all of its goodness and all of its glory and all of its joy and friendliness? What will it be like when it becomes the kingdom of God? When all of the good here, we discover that it was like a diamond in the raw. And when God polishes the good here and transforms it so that it's even more glorious. And what's gonna, what is Harrisonburg in the valley going to be like when King Jesus... And his benevolent economic policy transforms all of our lives. So when it comes to money and stuff, to resources and to work, it's our responsibility to accept the invading kingdom of God. Our role is to swear allegiance to King Jesus, to to take everything in our life and be willing to look at it as something that can fall within the transforming work of Christ. Our job is to become, as the church, an outpost of the colony of Jesus' kingdom amidst the kingdoms of this world. Our responsibility, those of us who are Christians, our responsibility is to declare in our words and our actions... In our lives together, in our economic practices, we are supposed to declare to the kingdoms of this world, there is a better king. There is another king. And that king is Jesus. And he's reclaiming what is rightly his. And there's not a single square inch of our lives that he's not interested in. He's ju- he is interested in our money. He's interested in our bodies, in our, in our sexuality, in our relationship to our neighbors, in our work, and all. He's interested in every square. It's a kingdom. And he's reclaiming what's rightly his. He's reclaiming this world. And when we live under the rule of Jesus, we're inviting every other kingdom to join us in pledging allegiance to the world's rightful Lord. This means that those of us who are followers of Jesus live in earthly kingdoms that cannot claim our primary allegiance. We live in the United States. 
We live in Virginia. We live in Harrisonburg. And while there are many aspects of these earthly kingdoms that might be close to God's design, there are also aspects of them that fall outside of God's design. So look at it this way. Every earthly kingdom has its own way of doing things. Whether it's United States or Sudan or the Dominican Republic or Kenya, every earthly kingdom has a way of doing things, customs, policies about food and family and religion. And every kingdom has an economic policy. So does the kingdom of God. The burden we face over the course of this next six weeks in this sermon series, Money and the Kingdom of God. The, the, the burden we face is to recognize that Jesus has more to say about money than be generous. That he has economic policies that help us to look at our city and our state and our nation and to see in it what is good and what is distorted. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to discover that the economy of God's kingdom is in some very serious ways countercultural. You see, globalization is subtly shaping all of us into a particular way of thinking and behaving in our economic lives. And in many respects, some of this is entirely in keeping with God's kingdom. I love capitalism. One of the greatest strengths of Western-style capitalism is its proven ability to reduce poverty. No other economic system has ever come anywhere close. Through globalization, the spread of Western-style capitalism has resulted in the most dramatic reduction in material poverty the world has ever seen. From 1990 to 2015, the percentage of people living below extreme poverty, a dollar, 90 cents per day, has been reduced by more than 50%. That's never happened in the history of the world in such a period of time. It is one of the greatest accomplishments of the human race. Think about it. In only about 25 years, the percentage of people in the world living below the extreme poverty line has been reduced by more than 50%. That's like sending a person to, to the moon. That is miraculous. It is an amazing accomplishment. And it happened through globalization as the institutions and practices and stories of Western-style capitalism are spreading around the world, particularly to places like India and China. They are creating a habitat that is terrific for producing stuff. But we're also seeing something else. We're seeing something that some economists have begun to label the paradox of happy peasants and miserable millionaires. At the same time as we're seeing the world's greatest reduction in abject poverty, at the same time that that, that is spreading, happiness is plummeting in the countries where poverty is plummeting. People in those countries, in study after study after study, as they're rising out of material poverty or experiencing a poverty they never had before. 
they are becoming less happy. They're reporting increased levels of loneliness, anxiety, and depression. There is increasing evidence that the current version of Western-style capitalism, for all of its strengths, for all of its help in helping people make stuff and, and be better off in the material sense, it is bringing with it something else. And I know that all correlation is not always causation. But I'm convinced on this issue, and not just me, but that these things are connected. Now, my point is that King Jesus is welcoming us into a kingdom that's about holistic flourishing, not merely economic flourishing. And so as citizens of his kingdom, we don't let anything off the hook. We are interested in flourishing. And the Bible defines flourishing as, as when your relationship with God, with yourself, with others, and the environment is robust and healthy. How can we grow in our economic practices so that we bear witness to the age that is to come, bearing witness to the kingdom that is coming, bearing witness to the economics of the city that is going to come when our Lord returns to us? So over the next six sermons, we're going to cover various issues. We're going to look at next week the way money can turn into an idol. In the way that hurts us when we, experience, when we go that route. On August the 14th, we'll explore the scriptures to see what God teaches us about the relationship between your money and your experience of community. And how we can bend our lives through our economic practices deeper into community. On August the 21st, we'll focus on the purpose of work. And the relationship of our work lives to the poor. On the 28th of August, we'll see that God has some amazingly creative and life-giving and practical instructions for how to think about generational poverty and groups of people who've been disenfranchised from the production side of the economy. On September the 4th, we'll focus on the relationship in scripture between money and the church. On September the 11th, our last Sunday on this, we'll wrap it all up by seeing how the Bible helps us to become generous, not only with our money, but with all our lives, and that generosity is fundamental to human flourishing. Now, let's be honest. This is going to be a tough series. It's going to be tough for two reasons. First of all, proclaiming Jesus as king in enemy territory is always tricky. In every culture in which the church has taken root, the surrounding culture simply has refused to accept that certain parts of Jesus' kingdom critique the surrounding culture. And sometimes this leads to marginalization, and sometimes it leads to martyrdom. And we must remember that the economy of God's kingdom is going to affirm and critique. The second reason this series is going to be hard is because we have all been deeply formed by the kingdom we live in. And it's going to challenge us. Now, let's close by bringing all of this back to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus came on the scene, he was saying, you're just like Rahab. There's a kingdom coming. Remember the people Jesus said that to trusted all sorts of things. What are you putting your deep trust in?
The way you spend your money, what does it say about what you trust? The way you think about your work, what does it say about where your trust is? And so our goal over these next few weeks is to bring all of this into an integrated place. I hope that all of us will repent and believe the gospel weekly, daily, regularly, and that all of us will bend our knee and swear allegiance to King Jesus and his good kingdom. Let's pray.